0: Our scriptures for this morning can be found in your pew Bible, if you'd like to uh, follow along. The first reference is Isaiah 61, 8 through 11. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations, and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation, and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness, As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the young plant come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. And the second passage, Revelation 21, 1 through 7. and they will be my children. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Steph Curry is the starring point guard for the Golden State Warriors. He's, there's a play where he's at the top of the paint and he feigns a the left, about to make a spin move, but instead he goes right, stops, pulls back, and drains a fadeaway with the defenders collapsing on him. The next play, he's at half court. He taps the ball ahead of him, pokes through between the defenders, and, and, and just as they're about to collapse on him, he grabs it, shoots between them, goes up for a layup with his hand on the right side, in midair, switches to the left, and banks it off the backside of the basket for another point. On the court, it looks like a game is being played out. But it's hours before the game. And it's Steph Curry on the court all by himself. You know, elite athletes like Steph use the power of visualization to make a difference in their performance in the game. Their experience and their practice combined with this practice of imagination, of a preferred outcome, affects and increases their effectiveness on the court. It's not just athletes who use it. Actors do it too. Jim Carrey, when he was a, strong, uh, a struggling actor starting out in the early 90s, he wrote himself a check for $10 million for services, acting services rendered, and he put it in his wallet until he got his first check of $10 million for the greatest movie of all time, Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> The power of visualization seems to be uh, backed by research, too. Did you know that some researchers have found that just imagining yourself doing hip flexor movements will increase the strength of your hip flexors? Uh, I like those kinds of workouts. (laughs) And others have found that just thinking about gaining muscle will help you get stronger, so I invite you to do that right now. Close your eyes. (laughs) Biceps are getting bigger. Six-pack is coming through. If you didn't get anything, at least you got a workout today at church, right? (laughs) So what about the Bible? The Christian scriptures, too, give us an image of a future outcome. But it actually goes beyond a visualization of the future, where if you believe it enough, it just might happen. I submit that the view of the future is far more significant than that. It's actually the future outcome that's being imprinted upon our present circumstance through Christ's work in our lives and in our response to him in revelation we've been given a picture of the future drawn by the one who holds the future and the view of the future is breaking into the present and that changes everything today we're going to conclude our god story our story sermon series by looking at the penultimate chapter of scripture revelation 21 And here we are given an idea of where human history is headed when Jesus comes again to take his place as king and leader over all creation. There's a renewal that takes place, a renewal of all things. Now, full acknowledgement, Revelation is a challenging book. It's full of symbolism and imagery that would have been familiar to ancient ears, but not so much to us. And we're skipping to the end of it. And ever since, it was recorded by the Apostle John when he sat in a prison on the island of Patmos as an old man recording these words for us. Generations have attempted to use this book as some secret codebreaker to unlock the interpretation of current events. The visions and imagery, however, are first a call to Jesus' followers to remain faithful to Jesus amidst the chaotic events surrounding them, in John's time and in ours. The Greek word for revelation means unveiling. And it literally means a peeling back of a curtain of what is to come. An unveiling of what is behind everything that's going on around us. If you want a solid, accessible resource, pick up a copy of this book, Discipleship on an Edge, an expository journey through the book of Revelation. It's written by my preaching professor, Daryl Johnson, And he's my friend, and I've relied on some of his work here in this message today. With that in mind, I want us to walk through the verses we just read to see how the end goal of history for the God of Scripture is the renewal of all things. It's a renewal of all things without. It's a renewal of all things within. And it's a renewal of all things in between. Without, within, and in between. John tells us that he sees a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and there was no longer any sea. The second verse continues on, the holy city, the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. The end of the story we read in scripture is not the end of the story of history, it's another beginning. Eugene Peterson, the recently late pastor and theologian, writes, The biblical story began, quite logically, with a beginning. And now it draws to an end, not quite so logically, also with a beginning. The sin-ruined creation of Genesis is restored in the sacrifice-renewed creation of Revelation. The story that has creation for its first word also has creation for its last word. In Revelation 21, we are given glimpses of a renewal without the world around us will be renewed. This vision of a future is physical and tangible. It's a spiritual, it's not a spiritual disembodied awakening. In this new creation, God's people will not just be sitting around on clouds with wings on their backs, sucking lollipops for all eternity. We're given a sense that there is a project to be done that just as there was for humanity in the first creation. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 11 Paints a picture of how created order will be renewed. Isaiah sees a future where a lion will lie down next to a lamb and a child will lead them. A lion, the ferocious king of the jungle now, will eat straw in the future. Infants will play next to cobras' dens. The created order will be familiar but significantly different. It will no longer bear the destructive burden of sin's curse. When God's first creation is set in a garden, the second creation is set in a city. And in this city, there is no need for a temple, which we'll get to in a moment. There will also be no sea. For ancient peoples, the sea represented chaos and destructive powers at work in their world. These too will disappear in the new creation. There's a river of life, we're told, in the following chapter, flowing through the middle of the city, and there are trees of life lining this river, hearkening back to the tree of life in the middle of the garden of God's first creation. The first hearers of Revelation lived in cities, and we're told at the beginning of Revelation, they were living in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And this image of a new city descending would have perked their ears. Because life in the city was hard for them. They were being persecuted for their faith. And as they heard John's words, they came to realize that being in the city wasn't the problem. The problem was the spell that these cities were under. John uses veiled terms like Babylon the Great and the mother of harlots. These are veiled terms for John's hearers. Pointing to those who wielded power and influence unjustly in their world. Can we see the drunken power of Babylon at work in our day and age today? However imposing and manipulative they may be, the justice and mercy of God will prevail in this new heaven and new earth. Our world is increasingly urbanized. In 1950, less than a third of the world's population lived in cities, and today, just over half live in cities. By 2050... Scientists or, you know, statisticians anticipate that more than two-thirds of the global population will reside in cities. With this increased urbanization, our lives and contributions in the city matter too. The city isn't just a good place to get a job, it's the future that's being imprinted on our present. So anything that we do to enhance community, anything that we do to work for justice and the flourishing of our cities and neighborhoods is a work towards this future. This means that our work matters now. You're not just doing it for a paycheck. Our work will matter in eternity if we do it for Jesus. When we educate the next generation, when we care for our children and adults, physically and emotionally, when we help organize and run programs for the betterment of our cities, when we make sure funds are spent accurately, and even when we pay our taxes, we find ourselves participating in God's renewal of all things. Until Christ returns and the new creation arrives in all its fullness, it will not be perfect, but it's still worthwhile. As we work for peace and justice and beauty and order and the flourishing of our humanity and creation, we participate in God's imprinting the future upon our present. Your work is... Is not done in vain. In Christ, all things without, the created order in this new city and the cities around us will be made new, but all things within will be made new as well. Our human experience will be renewed. This week, our family went on a road trip for Thanksgiving. To fill in the time during our drive, we took turns telling one another this game what does the rest of the family not know about you yet? Now, it's very easy for me and Julia because we just tell stories about before Ashley and Evan ever arrived. But in fact, this is actually a strategy for parents to get our kids to tell us secrets that they haven't told us yet. (laughs) I shared one memory about uh, me being a six-year-old, finding out that my best friend in the neighborhood lived two doors down, was moving to the suburbs with his family, which meant I no longer had a play buddy. And I distinctly remember feeling that I I was supposed to feel sad. So I went to my parents' room, dug my head and face and buried it into the pillows and the blankets and just conjured up tears because I knew that you're supposed to be sad. As a six-year-old, I consciously recognized that tears and sadness seem to be part of our human experience. I've never been much of a crier since. But as I've gotten older, the pain of separation and, and broken relationships does move me to say, God, there's got to be a better way than this. My heart hurts when I think of our foster son who who we had to leave when we, we, we prepared to come here. I mean, he's back with his dad and who loves him very much and we're very happy for that, but we miss the time that we shared together with him. We had the privilege of seeing him walk, take his first steps, to learn new words and string sentences together, and even thinking about the times that he tried to get Evan, 13 years his senior, in trouble, sitting in the backseat of the car to get us to yell at Evan when we turned around, and he would even try to get out of that by flashing his winning smile. Sadness and tears are part of our experience now, but they aren't part of the experience in the future, when Christ will renew all things within in verse 4, we're told that he will wipe away every tear from, our, from their eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning. No more crying or pain. For the old world, old order of things will be passed away. Sadness, the broken things of our world, and even death itself will be no longer. In this new creation, God will reverse the curse that entered the world through sin. J.R.R. R. 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 Tolkien, known most famously for his Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit series, writes of a time that will come when, quote, everything sad is going to become untrue. Everything sad is going to become untrue. All the things and the broken things of this world are not part of the truth that God intended, and he will reverse that one day. That is a powerfully poignant way of framing the world that is to come. At the same time, in the following verse of of what we just read in verse 8, we're told that the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic, arts, the idolaters, and the liars will all be cast away from God's presence. What's John trying to say here? That there's qualities that are inconsistent with the kingdom of God that will not be there. Those who cause grief and sadness and destruction will not be there to continue in that. John's list begins with cowardly and ends with liars, and they become kind of like bookends, referring to the kind of people that won't be found in this new creation. John likely isn't referring to those who bow to pressure of persecution or those who have lied at some point in their lives or expressed fear because who would not be guilty of those things? Instead, he is thinking of those who have proved to be cowards and liars in their denial of Christ as Lord over their lives. He's thinking of those early first century Christians who would have been challenged with the threat of death to confess Kaiser Curios, Caesar as Lord. And they repeatedly did so in direct opposition to the truth that Jesus is the only Lord to bow before. Their cowardice led them to lie about the truth, about the role of the true and living Lord over their lives. Now, we might not have a real, in the flesh, Caesar challenging Jesus' leadership in our lives, but we all have little Caesars at work in our lives. (laughs) Little Caesars is not just a pizza chain, okay? Little Caesars pop up in our lives like on Black Friday sales when we might find the Lord of Good Deals and the lord of unnecessary consumption rear its ugly head. Another little Caesar shows up when we build our identity and sense of meaning on our accomplishments rather than upon Christ. Or another little Caesar pops up when we prioritize our gender roles or our sexuality before our identity in Christ. And if you're careful enough to notice, and as you're reading these chapters, John describes the new city and the new creation as having trees of life, but there's a tree that's missing. It's the tree, a, a tree that was mentioned in the beginning of creation. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's the tree that Pastor Tim Day calls the tree of, I will decide for myself what is right and wrong. That tree is not there. And perhaps the absence of this tree of, I will decide for myself what is right and wrong, and the absence of sadness and tears are not mere coincidences like our first parents adam and eve in the garden we when we assert our identity apart from the living god we most likely find ourselves in despair and in sadness yet jesus comes to rid his kingdom of all these things that are so contrary to his own character and that gives us great hope even though we might experience sadness and depression And brokenness in our lives now, we can say that this is not what defines us. This is not what defines our future when we are in Christ. All the broken things of this world will one day become untrue. In the new creation, all things are made new without and all things are made new within, but all things are also made new in the in between. There's this curious word, liminal, that's attracted my curiosity. It means occupying a position at or on both sides of a boundary or a threshold. In nature, it's the boundary where a freshwater river might empty into a saltwater ocean, like this picture of the Fraser River emptying into the waters next to Vancouver, Canada. In science class, it might be the meniscus that separates the liquid that you want to measure from everything else around you. In the C.S. Lewis Narnia series, it's the wardrobe in Professor Kirk's home where Lucy and Peter discover behind the doors of this wardrobe and behind the coats contained within lies a wor- the fantastical world of Narnia. These liminal locations are all these in-betweens. between, And then in the new creation, we find that there's one significant in-between that too is made new. It's this temple One of the most significant symbols of the Jewish faith. It was essential to the understanding of God's presence dwelling with the Jewish people. It's hearkening back to a time when Israel was leaving Egypt and Moses built a tent where God's glory dwelt. And later on in Israel's history, it harkens back to the time when God's glory descended into the temple that King Solomon built the temple and all the religious activities surrounding it symbolize this mediating institution between human and the divine. It's the great in-between. The Israelites never imagined life without a temple, and they looked forward to a glorious temple in the future. But here, John, in his vision of the future, sees no temple in this new city. Why? Because the whole city is a temple. The new heaven and the new earth are the temple. God's dwelling place is the city itself. There is no longer a place of in-between. All of creation has indeed become a place of in-among, where God, the living God, is in among his creation and his people. The presence and the glory of God's presence is so luminously present That the city does not need the sun or a moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. What previously required a physical place for God's presence and was mediated by religious practices will now be completely accessible in the new creation. We are given a picture of the future where access to God's presence is completely unencumbered. He will simply be. And so will his people. So who gets to enjoy the renewal of all things? We've already seen how John's vision of the future clearly isn't universal. Those who reject Christ as Lord find themselves excluded from experiencing the renewal of all things. Verse 7 gives us a clue that we read earlier. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Those who will be able to enjoy the renewal of all things are those that are adopted into God's family through trusting in Jesus as king and leader over this new heaven and new earth. He is the one who is the true in-between in history through his life, through his death, and resurrection. It's the resurrected Christ that continues to be the in-between for us now. N.T. Wright, the Anglican bishop and theologian, writes, The resurrection is a sign, among many other things, that God's new creation has begun, and the future has come bursting into the present. Until the resurrected Jesus returns, he continues to be this great in-between for us before God, changing us, renewing us, and allowing his spirit to work in us, but also through us. The world. The story of Scripture paints a future where all things are renewed. It's a future that informs the present and how we live today. Daryl Johnson, my preaching professor, comments on this glorious future in his book. He says, We've all heard the saying, I may not know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. We even made a song about that, right? It's not quite true, though. After reading this, we do know what the future holds. It's an alternate reality that changes how we view our world, our relationships. It changes how we read the news and how we use our time and money. It changes how we strive for justice and good in the world. The future changes everything now. When Christ returns, it will be a literal and encompassing renewal of all things. It will be a renewal of all things without in the created order in this city It will be renewal of all things within our human experience, where brokenness and sadness and pain and death will be no longer. And it will be renewal of all things in between humanity and the divine. No longer will we find God's presence clouded by religious practice and doubt. Those who find and respond and trust in Christ will find themselves in the glorious presence of the living God for eternity. In this new creation. What will happen then changes what happens now. So we can live full of hope, knowing that we can be a part of this story by trusting in the resurrected Jesus. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we look around us, it's easy to be overwhelmed. As we look to our own lives and we see some of the messes that we find ourselves in. Again, it's easy to be overwhelmed. But when we look up and we look ahead, we're thankful that the end of the story can be known. It's a part of the story that you, Jesus, have already been to and come back from in your death and resurrection. So when things overwhelm us, when the brokenness of our world and our lives loom large over us, may we find solace in you and your promise of a glorious future. But it's not just this future out there. It's breaking into our present. Help us to see glimpses of this future kingdom in our present kingdom. Help us to join you and participate with you. Sharing the hope of what is to come. Even now, we thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray.